So tonight we're going to look uh, at the Christmas story. Seems appropriate. Had a couple of people say, is church going to be kind of Christmassy? I said, yeah, I think so. And so um, here we are at, at that. What these are is they're a little gift from uh, me to you. They are a short story by George MacDonald. How many of you have read anything by George MacDonald? Okay. If you haven't, this is going to be a great one to start. And then I'm going to probably read up maybe a little poem or two of his about Christmas. This is a Christmas uh, short story called The Gifts of the Christ Child. And it's not what you would expect from a Christmas story. It's not what you would expect from a Christmas story. But uh, McDonald, if you've read any of his stuff, he is a really good storyteller at getting into the details of people's lives. And particularly, he's passionate about how Christ can transform those details. So I think I've got plenty for, for everybody. And uh, it's uh, 22 pages. And so it's a little long. Yeah, we can pass them out right now. It's a little long to read tonight. We're also going to light some candles. and uh, But to get there, I want to get into the Christmas story. So that's what we're going to do right now. So in a letter from 19, or 1888, George MacDonald says of Christmas, if the story were not true, nothing else would be worth being true. Because it is true, everything is lovely, precious. And the, the Christmas story for MacDonald guaranteed the integrity and the, and the reality of beauty and of truth and other stuff. This caught my eye because I, uh, you know, Christmas is not the most, it, it's, it's probably one of the most emphasized Christian holidays in secular culture, but it's not so much the most emphasized holiday. And there is a priority in George MacDonald's writings and in his life that um, Christmas holds that a lot of Christian writers don't have. Um, matter of fact, we were looking at some stuff about other quotes and things to kind of set the tone for our um, set the tone for the, the Christmas thing. And I was thinking about C.S. Lewis and Vicky did some research for me. And she said, well, Lewis kind of has a love-hate relationship with Christmas. And I think that's where a lot of theological writing and thought might end up being. I don't think we need to. I really don't. And I understand that we can, um, you know, the, the, you can debate earnestly and scholarly and seriously, or you can also debate cynically. Uh, do we have the right time? Do we have this, that, the other? Uh, the pagan influences, the material influences, and all that kind of stuff. The thing I fear, if we give too much attention to those, those thoughts, I'm not saying we don't need to give any, is that we'll miss the story. Because the story is about something pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. And so we're going to try to emphasize that a little bit, and then we'll do a candle lighting and see how it goes. So... I'd like some people to help me read. Who likes to read, and are you comfortable reading off the screen? 
Okay, Jason, you want to come up and read a section? Why don't you read the uh, the first three slides, which will be, because I think we got, uh, let's see, one. Yeah, Luke. Yep. So the first one, we're going to read the Christmas story out of Luke. So come on up. And uh, you guys on Zoom, Bev, hi. Nathan, you guys should be able to, Jason, or uh, Riley, we want to go go right over to the screen so they can follow along. You know how to do that? Oh, oh, it's that one right there. Thank you. All right. The Christmas story, his birth. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There appeared with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God, for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Give me a hand. So the next part, uh, and and it's it's amazing how few verses comprise the depth of the story of Christmas. I mean, it's really you know there's a lot to the story. There's a lot of thought. There's it, it, it's invaded cultures all the world over. Um, but it's not really a big section of scripture. It, and, and it's telling some really real things like, uh, rooting this in the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Well, that's interesting. There's something real there. 
and the the cities, the towns, the the census, the various things like that. And I love what it says at the end there that Mary treasured these things, pondering in her heart. She did something similar, I remember, earlier in her life when the angel appeared to her. <laughs> and the Lord said, hey, I got a job. You're the right woman for it. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So, but what's missing out of this telling of the gospel that's pretty common in the imagery and the thoughts about the gospel in our culture and stuff? Yeah, there you go. All right, so the next section, that's where that's at. And it's where some other stuff's at, which is kind of rough. That That is a, a beautiful element of Christmas that's woven into something pretty serious. So who would like to read the next couple uh, slides of the Matthew? I, see, I mean, there, I think there's two of them. There's three. Okay. The Christmas story, the Magi and Herod. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. You know, there was no really good place to stop there because <clears throat> Joseph gets him down in Egypt and he lives there until Herod dies. And you know that part of the story. But the reason I highlighted a couple things in here... Uh, Back up and I'll show them to you. The question that Herod asked reveals what he was trying 
to uncover, but more importantly, it reveals who he was afraid of. It wasn't like he was afraid of Jesus the Nazarene, because Jesus the Nazarene was unknown. And um, had he been known, he would have just been a little, a little booger, you know. Have you ever noticed that Herod was inquiring about where the Messiah of the nation that he was the king of <laughs> was going to be born? He wasn't, I mean, I'm sure it was a political thing, and I'm sure that his political aspirations and so on were the problem the perversion, but he knew exactly who he was afraid of, who was a threat to him. And it wasn't somebody rising up like one of the Maccabees, or it wasn't somebody rising up outside of that. He wanted to know where the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, had come from. This shows the level of of malevolence and depravity that humanity can have. So it probably shouldn't be any surprise to us that uh, Jesus' incarnation here actually ended with humanity turning against him and releasing their wrath. Personally, I think that's one of the things we have a tendency to lose if we emphasize or try to make it like it was God's wrath that was being poured out on Jesus. It was not. It was ours. The system, the leaders, the political system finally caught up with him when they missed him among all those little two-year-old and under. They finally caught up with him. And the incarnation, like we were talking in there, preceded the crucifixion. You know, and it set the stage for that. The uh, other one, in the, in the Luke story, the angels were quite involved. And I, for me, it's always been a beautiful, beautiful thing that the, that the uh, shepherds were still functional after the announcement. You know what I mean? I mean, how, can you guarantee you would be? An angel comes, okay, we can kind of handle that. That's kind of special, you know, especially those of us that have been on some ascensions and stuff. We kind of got our, you know, we got our little confronted by angel muscle exercised a little bit, but then <laughs> the whole thing opens up and these guys are still not wobbly kneed and passed out on the ground. They're able to go and, and see and obey. I thought that was pretty cool. So angels play a role here, but look at what creation is doing. I, for one, am, I find no need anymore in my life to try to explain with my astronomy uh, hobby and habit what, what, all that, what those words mean. It says it went before them until it came and stood over the place the child was. I don't know what that meant. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do, and I don't know if they were some ancient form of a sextant that put them in their coordinates or whatever. But what I'm, what I'm suggesting 
is this story is a pretty big deal because creation bowed to the announcement, bowed to the worship, bowed to the pursuit of him. And this was probably not that day that he was born. This was probably sometime after that. So this had been a process that was cruising along. It could have been quite a long time, actually, because it might have triggered, that might have triggered Herod's dates of going back two years to try to destroy him. But heaven and earth were already working together. That's one thing we celebrate in Christmas. Already working together. Not that it was ever done, but now it was being witnessed by people. People were being the ones blessed. Uh, and then, I love it, ha- they worshipped him, and then having been warned by God in a dream, they paid attention. The next one, to me, this part of the Christmas story illustrates probably the simplest pattern of worship, I mean of obedience, that can be found in the Scripture. Look what it says. Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to destroy him. First of all, the blackness in Herod's heart, heaven knew. And they warned Joseph. And then look at what it says. Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. I was reading that today and I was going, God, let my obedience be like that. Let my obedience be like that. And in my obedience, i got to confess, is not naturally that way. My obedience is more like the guys on Mars Hill. Like, that's interesting, Lord. Let's talk about that some more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll come back later. But have you ever, have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought of, of the, the impact of Joseph's Simply, honey, it's time to go. Get Jesus, get the stuff, and we're out of here. In the night, before the next morning came. And how cool is it to have confidence in being spoken to in a dream that can motivate you to act the moment you wake? That's pretty cool. I think that's awesome. This is a part that isn't often associated with a Christmas story. But I think it is. And I wanna I wanna bring it out tonight before we before we start lighting the candles and stuff. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's so much in these in these passages, and I think to think of them in context of the of the Christmas story of the incarnation, it it behooves us to do it a little bit. Let me back up and just look at a couple points. In him was life. In who? In the one who was with God in the beginning, face to face. In the one who was God. So that doesn't make life being in him seem that strange, right? Of course, the creator and sustainer of all gives life, has life to give, okay? But the life was the light of men. I go back to Isaiah in uh, Isaiah 60 where it talks about uh, darkness on the land and deep darkness on the people. The solution to that darkness is him, the light that he gives. And he's always been giving it. Isaiah said, Arise and shine. Your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. God's intention was not to give us an option. It was not to give us an escape. It was to give us the life we were created to carry. To restore that. And he needed light to do it. We needed to be enlightened. That light that shone, it, it's a big deal. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. All I, all I ask anybody to do anymore is just let those words mean what they would naturally mean. That somehow the life that gives light of Jesus is working to enlighten every man. Something about it. I don't know how uh, to describe it necessarily. I don't know what sort of limits to put on or take off of it. But just all we got to do is just let it let it say what it says. You know, he was in the world. The world came made through him, and the world didn't know him. We understand that. Tonight we're gonna. I appreciate uh, Dave and Teresa bringing a menorah. I wanted to do the candle lighting thing, but I wanted to link it back to the promises that have been given and given and given over again through Israel to the world. And, and that's kind of what we're doing this for tonight. So the light that begins with that helper candle is the same light that we have a chance to share with one another and to receive from it. And so almost in the same way, when you take communion, uh, you have a choice of taking it in kind of a disconnected way. And you're tempted to think, oh gosh, I'm supposed to examine myself. And then you back away from the person sitting next to you, and then you back away from the person on the other side. Then you back away from the communion table a little bit, and then you back away from yourself and try to look at yourself and examine yourself. I don't think that's the way to interpret stuff. This didn't replace. This was the Messiah. Remember the one that Herod was asking about because he wanted to get rid of him? That's inconceivable to me. I, I, I don't understand how the nature of the nation the nature of the politic could have fallen to that place. But then I didn't understand how others in the community 
during Jesus' time had him standing right in front of them and didn't see it. It's because they didn't have the light. So God's always presented that. We're a part of that same revelation. And all of the other uh, idiosyncrasies of Christmas that we might begrudge about, the materialism and all that stuff, lay it aside and realize that we are celebrating an amazing fulfillment of the heart of God toward humanity that, by all indications, preceded the fall. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I thought about you, Dan, the idea of Him being full of grace and truth. That's what makes it such a crime for us to reduce grace to a catchword or a, I don't know what, byline or something ancillary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what's that thing? Yeah, I don't want to get into it. It's like mercy is, you know, not getting what you deserve and grace is not being punished for what, yeah. No, it's way bigger than that, guys. This is the outflow of the heart of God. Yahweh has declared it through the whole history of Israel. All of these symbols, all the feasts, all the deliverances, in the midst of judgment, after returns from exile. And Jesus has declared it with his very life, the living part of his life not just the dead part. So, anyway, the verse I had up there at the beginning, and uh, I was talking with Dan a little bit about this. I don't have the the Isaiah 53 verse, but there is a, a significant prophetic revelation of order that touches on our celebration and receiving the life and light of Christmas. Isaiah chapter 6, or chapter 9, verses 6 to 7 here, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever and ever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Um, Isaiah 9 precedes Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the story of the suffering servant. I think we do have a tendency to see as the focal point of history the death and resurrection, the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. And I'm not saying that anything should be taken away from that. But I think I understand a little bit more after walking through this stuff why George MacDonald placed such a premium on Christmas. Because George MacDonald's first sermon in his Unspoken Sermon series is called A Child in the Midst. And his life and his ministry and his devotion to scripture and to God and to theology and to truth and to writing and to all the the children's stories he wrote in fiction was about that. It was about children 
being children of the Father and letting the Father have a Father's heart. Not a judge's heart. Not a scribe's heart. Not a a, a military commander's heart. Let him have a Father's heart. And I think that's what Jesus came to reveal, was the Father and the heart that the Father had. And I think that's what Christmas was there. Now, if I were to go back, which I'm going to do, let me see what's next. I think next is, oh, I'll I'll, I'll get back to that in just a second. Well, no, let me go here and then I'll... This is another quote from MacDonald. The winter is the childhood of the year. Into this childhood of the year came the child Jesus. And into this childhood of the year must we all descend. It is as if God spoke to each of us according to our need. My son, my daughter, you're growing old and cunning. You must grow a child again. I think that reveals his heart and why he's captivated by Christmas. And believe me, he doesn't short shrift Good Friday or Easter or any of those things or Pentecost. But let me back up just a second. I'm going to go all the way back to our beginning here. Verse 14 has had my attention for quite a long time. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. The reason I I can't resist putting something in there, you know, Greek. Um, The word for that is aim. Peace in men. It's been relational in its target and it's been personal in its target from the beginning. It's not just a matter of Jesus showing up in the middle of a big, huge group of people called Israel, smaller Bethlehem, blah, blah, blah. He came for us. He came to us. And Ain is that word. Now, it's not horrible to translate it among, but we, we do it in so many cases in Scripture when in would work, even though it would be a little awkward, because we, it's almost too good to, to be true to believe that he's in us and that he wants to be in us. It's sort of the same thing over in, in the first part of John. We've got some scripture out there. But glory to God in the highest and peace on earth in men. But look at the phrase. This was before John the Baptist ever preached to repent. This was before Jesus ever died and rose again. This was before Paul ever articulated the gospel in the way that he did. This was before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. With all my heart, I believe that we make a terrific exegetical and relational error if we think that that only means the people who are select, chosen, or whatever the case is. God sent his son because he loved the world the cosmos, the things of our hearts, the things of our minds, the things of our hands. So, anyway, I think that's pretty cool. So now, Dave, if you would come up, 
we're going to get into the light. Ing. Thanks, buddy. And Teresa. So, Hanukkah actually finished last Thursday. So, but Larry approached me with this, and so I said, yes, let's do this. Um, the prayer for lighting the menorah, and I will read it in English only, so I don't butcher my own Hebrew. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to kindle the lights of the Hanukkah. And you'll notice my lovely assistant is burning the bottom so that they actually stand. So here's the light. And now <laughs> that light came down, right? His life is the light. So there's candles on that side and candles on that side. I encourage all of you to just get up there and pull a light off this. And what do you think, uh, Dave? Should we pull it off the helper candle in the middle? Excellent. Okay. Yep. So uh, come on up and then, Laurel, we can have the kids do it too. All righty. Jesus, thanks for coming. I'm pretty sure there's more we could say. And maybe it's necessary sometimes. But sometimes I know that I go off in too many directions and I forget that you came. Not permanently and not long term, but for the moment. And I don't want to do that tonight. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Holy Spirit, thanks for making the miracle of the Incarnation a living possibility beyond anything that we can or probably ever should try to parse out and understand mechanically. And Jesus, thank you for coming. we do what's called an Advent celebration. And we used to do it every day from Thanksgiving to Christmas. And as we read the story out of chapter 2, we sing um, as it's talking about as it's talking about him being born in a manger, as it's talking about the angels. And so I would just like us all to just stare at the light. And let's just sing Silent Night because it's beautiful. Okay. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child, oh. So, 
to think about it just a second before we... Oh, I want you to... Yeah, the countenance of the Lord, His face shining on us. I want you to think about that just for a second. And I want you to just close your eyes and imagine what it would... What it looks like if you had been there and Jesus would have looked up at you as a baby. And you can and, and you can see him looking at you as adult or king of kings or lord. But just close your eyes and put yourself in a position of, of one of those magi or put yourself in a position of one of those shepherds and let the countenance of the little <laughs> of the little king of kings and lord of lords, the sustainer and creator of all. Let it shine on your face. And let's just, just give ourselves a couple minutes here and see what he, what he looks like looking at you. Anybody have anything they want to share? This was kind of funny. I was looking at Jesus as a baby and he looked up at me and he winked. <laughs> <laughs> he knew even then who he was and who he'd be in my life. <laughs> Anybody else? I'm going to need Laurel's help for this. But um, it's been about a year now. I've been thinking of that little childhood song we used to sing, This Little Light of Mine. And I used to love that song. And then I got to thinking, it's not a little light. It's a great light. And maybe we can close out by singing This Little Great Light of Mine. Um, I'm going to let it shine. But I can't sing so... This great light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This great light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This great light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. What else is there? Let it shine till Jesus comes. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This great light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This great light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This great light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And now we're gonna blow it out. Because the light is in us. Yeah, when you're convinced the light's in you, then you can. Then you're gonna blow it? This one's about to burn the paper. So we're sure the light is that one out. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.